Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Changes. My name is Annie McManus. This is a podcast all about change. How are you? I hope you're doing good. I'm delighted to bring you an episode this week that is really stimulating for your brain. It's going to make you think. It's going to make you ask questions. It may even make you change your mind. On this podcast, we cover all aspects of change, of course, from the personal changes in our guests' lives to ideological or societal changes. But change, of course, can be bigger. It can be universal. And something which we know is constantly changing is our understanding and perspective of Earth. How we affect the planet just by existing as a species. If you think about what we are, that's you and me and everybody that's listening, we're collections of atoms that can think. Now, that just you have to stop at that point and say, well, that sentence is astonishing. That somehow... Out of these atoms, as old as time, most of them, are made in the hearts of stars, have come together in patterns that can make music and art and science and, and in a very real sense, bring meaning to the universe. Then that tells you that we're astonishingly special. It's good to be reminded about what we're actually made of, right? Brian is very good at making us all remember just the value of our existence and also to make us think about the world and how we change it. He's a bit of an icon, Professor Brian Cox, a former rock star turned physicist. You'll probably know the band Dream, which had a UK number one hit with Things Can Only Get Better in 1994. Well, he played keys in that band. He then had quite the U-turn and became known as a physicist for presenting documentaries for the BBC, particularly the Wonders Of series, including Wonders of the Solar System. His most recent documentary was Universe, which you can still watch on BBC iPlayer. He's previously been compared to David Attenborough in the science world and has co-written eight books, including Human Universe, Forces of Nature and Universal, A Guide to the Cosmos. His latest, Black Holes, The Key to Understanding the Universe, is out in October. He's now busy selling out arenas around the world, sharing his wisdom about the cosmos, with seven sold-out nights at the Royal Albert Hall on his current tour alone. Still a rock star. The show is called Horizons, a 21st century space odyssey, which is designed to take audiences on a cinematic journey with the help of comedian Robin Ince. But it's not just about informing the general public as well as entertaining them. Brian speaks here about a time when he had the opportunity to address all the world leaders to make them consider what knowing more about the universe can do for our lives and democracy in general. It's so wonderful what he says. So I spoke to Brian to learn more about where it all started for him and how his own life has changed, but also to ask, how can knowing more about the universe change your life? Let's hear it. Welcome to Changes, Professor Brian Cox. Brian, can you tell me about your relationship to the word change, please? Change. From a scientist's perspective, one of the character traits you need is to be delighted about not knowing. So mm. the unknown 
is something that you have to face with delight and wonder and not fear. And that's difficult, which is why I call it a character trait. Maybe it's kind of there are different kinds of people and there's some mm. people that like the unknown and some people that don't. Uh, if you're the kind of person that likes the unknown, then change constantly happens because what you're trying to do is understand more deeply in the case of science questions such as how did our universe begin what is the nature of space and time all those things are unknown right so, so i tend to think of change as something that i not only like but delight in because change in the amount of knowledge that we have about the way the world works is what i sort of enjoy the most it's almost what you live for as a scientist is to, is to have a changing view of our place in the universe for example a constantly changing view of the way our reality is and what our place is within it. You speak of Oldham in this wonderful book, Human Universe, which I've been reading. And you say that Oldham looks how joy division sounds. <laughs> and you like how joy division sounds. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah. Tell us a bit what it was like growing up in Oldham for you. Well, so I grew up at that time when a factory record was just, you know, beginning. And so Joy Division, New Order, later the Smiths were kind of, my soundtrack and um i grew up loving the the moors so oldham is a town in the country it's often described as and it's an old mill town and so there's a darkness about it and there's also this real majestic nature it's quite challenging naturally the yorkshire moors are they're bleak in a very beautiful way and i think that joy division and new order those bands captured that romantic bleakness of, of the moors and especially when you're 13 14 15 you know that really appealed to me i was basically a goth i basically still am actually but in <laughs> sensibility but so that was the the music that i think it sounds best if you're in a little um as it was then a ford fiesta sat on top of the moors with these dark threatening clouds and the sun going down and the rain you know, sort of cascading across the the moors yeah. with the twinkling lights of Manchester in the, in the distance. That kind of bleak beauty is part of the way that I grew up. Mm. And what about early childhood then? What are your memories of growing up in the house with your parents? And you have a sister, right? Yeah. A little sister. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I mean, I, I remember this uh, typical 70s childhood, which at the time... You, it was exciting because we had things like power cuts. Yeah, those are some of my first memories, actually, were trying, having to get candles out and light them because there was no electricity. Some of the first things I vividly remember are things like the, the Silver Jubilee. Right? Remember 1977, wasn't mm. it? The street parties and things like that where everyone was out on the street. And we used to go on holiday to Wales, basically. That's where everybody went. So we went to Colwyn Bay and Landudno. And then um, later on, graduated all the way to Cornwall. So that was very exotic to yeah. go to Cornwall on the train. So you must have been a very curious kid. Can you remember that being kind of nurtured, that curiosity in you? Or... I, I was into astronomy, um, actually, from a young age. And what got you into it? I don't know. I, I've thought about it a few times. And I, I wonder whether it was just that I associated it, definitely still do, with the passing of the seasons. It's one of the things I particularly like is the way the sky changes. Yeah. As you go into the autumn and winter and then spring and summer. And so I associated Orion coming up when I was walking home from school with then um, October, November and the darkening nights and then Christmas, I suppose. We made a film about it. I wrote about it in a book called Forces of Nature. That 
kind of almost imperceptible shift in the way that you know the temperature changes and the leaves fall off the trees and all those things that we remember and we grew up with when you, when you grow up in somewhere like England right in Britain you yeah. that's it's such a central part of your life and the actual idea that that's actually telling you about the motion of a planet around a star the more you pull up the thread the more wonderful this gentle passing of the seasons becomes and so I got interested in uh, this is you know this is a remarkable thing why do the leaves fall off the trees and why does Orion come off it's because the earth's spinning that's interesting and it's going around mm. the star and that's interesting and it tilted mm. and that's interesting and how old were you when you were making these kind of journeys of discovery uh, I know that I was interested way before the age of 10 because I got a telescope wow. for Christmas a little telescope and I wanted binoculars and I was very interested in a when Carl Sagan's Cosmos came on TV, which was 1980, mm. I think it was. Right. So I was 12. But I think definitely uh, before the age of 10, I was really into astronomy mm. and loved it. And then you got the telescope. So your family were kind of assisting this curiosity in their way. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose they, they'd said to me, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, a little <laughs> telescope. So in that sense, I mean, my, my, you know, my mum and dad weren't interested in science at all. Um, right. So all this natural curiosity you had, did that translate into school? Yes and no. It's interesting. I mean, I, I met my old physics teacher recently, actually. And then, um, mm. you know, I thought he's going to say, well, yeah, you were great at physics. But I think he said to me, yeah, you were quite unusual <laughs> as a student. How so? <laughs> I, don't know, I think I probably was. I mean, I, I was kind of more, I, I was into music as well at the time. So I did okay at school, but I never really tried very hard i mean i joined a band before i did my a levels and i left school and went straight into music so i didn't go to straight to university i was much more interested in being a musician at that time interesting now that you are basically you're still touring you know you're taking what you do on tour as a band would as a rock band would you know you're doing it your way yeah but my you know fortunately now i can do miles bigger venues than i used to be able to exactly. do with my bands they're enormous <laughs> which like is arena quite vibes yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's funny I mean, even even you know i mean the first band i was in was um dare a rock band which came out yeah. of thin lizzy and then went to university joined d-ream and even d-ream at their height we toured we'd take that so we played some big venues but not actually the o2 size so mm. now it's it's quite amusing to me that I've got five trucks and two crew buses and <laughs> you know that's what I dreamt of when I was ten yeah. or fifteen. I was that you know, <laughs> so I still like it. Tell me about then you were kind of hijacked by pop music for a, a good few years and you. You did end up in university. How was your experience of university as a as a student? It was very unusual, I would say, because I was right. Well, how old was I? Twenty three or twenty four when I got there. So at University of Manchester. So I really wanted to do it. So the first thing is I made the choice because we toured a lot. I mean, Dare made two albums. My first professional gig actually was supporting Jimmy Page. Believe it or not. Wow! So we're thrown in at the deep end. Yeah, and he watched the show every night, and that was a wonderful experience. And then we toured with a huge tour with Europe, the band Europe. Yeah, final countdown. So we toured, yeah. So we toured and toured and toured. So I'd got sick of it really, and and I, you know, as I said, I was into astronomy. I wanted to do physics, so I got in. So I'd already been in a rock band for five years. But that's a massive identity change, though. 
leaving that life and that band to go and be a student. That must have been quite a shift. Yeah, it was. But then in the summer, as I was going there, I needed a job to get some money. And a friend rang me up and said, uh, I got this band and I don't, I don't like the music really. I don't think they're going anywhere, but can you just do sound for them? Because I don't want to do it. And that was d Ream. <laughs> so before they had a deal. And that was 1993, I think, so three. So, you know, it's just the time when they were putting white label music out. Mm-hmm. So I ended up accidentally joining d Ream. And then d Ream got massive. Yeah, so and, they, were on, they uh, were on top of the pops doing... Things could only get better in 94, I think. Would that be Yeah, right? so I was then on top of the pops, <laughs> right? So so I'm still a student, still an undergraduate, so, uh... and also doing things like that, you know. Oh. So I had a really unusual time. <laughs> so not the typical students, really. But what did your but... learnings kind of afford you in that time? Did it help you know yourself better in that time which is so chaotic yeah because very few people are naturally good at mathematics right. and i'm not one of them so uh, it was the first time i think in my life that i actually had to do real work right really work at something because mm-hmm. i loved physics so i found out how to be very tenacious with ideas and to go i'm going to understand this it's not easy i'm going to understand it and um, it's still to this day, that's what I do. So the only thing that I realized, I say this to students, the thing that made the difference for me was that actually, often, usually, understanding things is hard. Uh, I worked out that I can understand stuff. And I think this goes for most people. It is possible to understand even the deepest and most complex ideas if you're prepared to sit there day after day and week after week and just keep going until you get it. Mm. And what's bizarre is that once you understand something, and this is the same now, right? I, I've been writing a book on black holes, which are tremendously difficult to understand. And I've probably spent about six months um, trying to understand some stuff about black holes. Once you get it, it's, it's so simple that you think that's just obvious, isn't it? And it isn't, of course. What you've done is you've found a way of you're you personally yeah. understanding it and picturing it and you almost really why your brain you probably do actually literally yeah. in the yeah. process and uh, that's what i learned so i learned um that some things are not easy mm. and actually that then there's a great a tremendous joy when it drops yeah you know, that, that's saying the penny drops but yeah. it does it's almost like that that when you really go at something there's almost a eureka moment but it's of course it's not a eureka moment it's the fact that you sat there for six months <laughs> mathematicians great mathematicians will often describe mathematics as beautiful there's a very very wonderful i, I, I actually quote it in my live shows there's a great indian mathematical physicist chandrasekhar who did loads of work on collapsing stars so a lot of the pioneering work into stars collapsing and maybe forming black holes and he wrote a book called truth and beauty in the 1980s and he said about this mathematical solution to Einstein's equations that describes spinning black holes and spinning stars. He said that this shuddering before the beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. Shuddering before the this this incredible fact that a quest for the beauty in mathematics is a guide to nature. It tells me that the the, the thing that attracts the human mind is beauty at the most profound yeah. level. You hear mathematicians talk like that and you see it and you you say there's more to this mathematics than just doing sums, right? There's something in here. Um, Einstein said the same thing. 
And he was famously not a great mathematician. You know, he had this wonderful thing. I also talk about this in the live shows, actually, that um, it was an experience he had when he was a little boy and his, um, his dad gave him a compass. And he said, look, you know, and this is it. so it points north. And so he thought, well, there's something, there's this invisible thing that's influencing it, making it point. And he said, it was like an example of uh, something deeply hidden, is what he said. So, so the world, nature, if you look at it really carefully, and it doesn't have to be a compass needle, it can be a rainbow or whatever, you just want to explain it. And if you look really carefully, you can get a glimpse of something deeply hidden, which is this beauty underlying nature. It's the same experience. When did you realise, or did maybe someone else helped you realise, that you had this kind of innate talent of being able to communicate? what is this kind of vast, overwhelming reality into something that is palatable and accessible and understandable. It's quite unique how you do that. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's, it's good of you to say so. I mean, it's, it's, it was an accident. Um, I, I was working, I was actually at CERN, the European Centre for Nuclear Physics, as it was. And so that's the, it was a remarkable laboratory. It was set up in the 1950s as part of the unification of Europe after the war. So, you know, when, when we first realized that the route to peace is for nations to collaborate together and work together and, mm. uh, rather than uh, separate and work selfishly. And um, so remarkably, and this is the 1950s, so you talk about, you know, arguments we have today as being divisive because we get fed up with various things that different countries do in Europe. <laughs> I mean, then it was 10 years after the war and the, Europe came together in peace to explore the world, explore nature, because it's interesting for no other reason. And it was one of the great projects that would bring Europe together. Indeed, it did. And um, it's still there. And it's in Switzerland and France. And that's where we build these remarkable machines to, to explore nature. And by the way, one of the offshoots of that was the World Wide Web, famously. So it does turn out to be useful quite often. Yeah. But, um, and so I was working there and um, the people got interested in this giant machine and the, the BBC came and wanted to talk to people. And it was kind of, it was part of that. And they just thought that they liked the way that I spoke about things. And so I, I got a little TV show, uh, which is called The Big Bang Machine, I think it was called. And, and that was on BBC Four, as it was. And it came from there really. So it's an accident. And again, part of it's practice as well. It's really good practice because it's the same with teaching, actually. When you have to explain something, you, you find out very often that you didn't understand it. <laughs> and so again, it's that it's tenacity. It goes back to tenacity. It's, it's like, do I really understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So it, it fits in with my general view that if I can't understand something, it's my fault first and therefore it's my job to fix it i watched you on jonathan ross a clip and i wondered in the moment like does it ever get frustrating for you being this guy who has to be dumbed down a lot of the time when you go on these things no i mean it's more frustrating when you make documentaries and, it, and, and there's pressure to dumb them down actually pressure is right. the wrong word but i always tend to think that more information can be taken because when I, live shows are so 
interesting because then it's just me an audience and i think audiences can take a lot more than we give them credit for actually but in that case actually jonathan it's interesting because jonathan's a very he's an intelligent person who's really interested in this stuff and and i we just made um uh, a version a thing the infinite monkey cage which is a, a radio show yeah. that i do on radio 4 we just made one in the us actually for the jet propulsion lab at nasa and conan o'brien did it with us and i've known conan for a while as well and he said to me um you know one of the things that I like about podcasting, which he does now, rather than the late night TV, is late night TV is just brain numbingly. <laughs> you know, you get people who don't want to be there or, or they need to be there to promote a movie and they've got nothing to say at all. And it's just awful. And he said, you know, yeah. he did it for years and he's very good at it. But he said that, you know, that's the pressure. It's Saturday night TV. And that's what Jonathan does very well. Right? He, he makes the TV that is appropriate for Saturday night. And to his credit, you know, and Conan, I, I was, I've been on Conan's show as well, that they, they fight to have people on who will talk about something other than the latest movie. And you've got to fit in with that. But the, the thing is, though, what am I trying to do? What are we in science trying to do? We're trying to democratise it and we're trying to make people aware of these wonderful things, uh, people who wouldn't normally be interested or tune in, but will be interested. Yeah. I, I genuinely believe that everybody not even almost. I think everybody is interested in these questions. Are we? Where's the next civilization out there? Are we alone? The mm -hmm. thousands of light years in every direction. Is there life on Mars? You know, how did the universe begin? Everybody's interested in those questions. But a lot of people mm -hmm. are frightened by them or think they don't have the ability, the intellectual ability to grasp yeah. them. And that's all nonsense. As I said, you know, there's nothing really special about the majority of scientists they're just people who decided that they're going to keep going and try to understand difficult things and so I, I think it's really important for people like me and lots of other people actually as many scientists as you can get to get on those programs and it's really hard yeah because you probably know it's a you know it's it's a skill in itself actually. it's a real process you have to yeah. you know you, you can when, when you're confronted with someone like jonathan who's brilliant and doing his thing yeah. then to stand up to it and to get your message across, which is what he wants and they want, is a skill, actually. It's just something yeah. that you learn to do. I read in your book, you talk about the ascent into insignificance. Mm. So this idea of an awareness of the bigger picture making you feel smaller, which is a really positive thing. This idea of feeling yeah. small in a huge universe. Can you talk to me a bit about yeah, that? Yeah, it's, it's central, actually, to... To, to my live show, it's quite a personal show. And one of the central ideas is that, that there are two almost things that seem mutually exclusive, right? There are two ideas. One is that we are physically insignificant. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we now know that the Earth is one planet around one star amongst 400 billion stars in one galaxy amongst two trillion galaxies in a patch of the universe that is possibly a small patch of an infinite universe. And now even there are multiverse ideas where there might be an infinite number of universes, right? So right. first of all, we're physically insignificant, <laughs> there's no doubt, right? Yeah. But also, there's another idea that I explore, which is that if you think about what we are, that's you and me and everybody that's listening, we're collections of atoms that can think now that just you have to stop at that point and say what that sentence is astonishing that somehow 
out of these atoms, as old as time, most of them, or made in the hearts of stars, have come together in patterns that can make music and art and science, and, and in a very real sense, bring meaning to the universe, then that tells you that we're astonishingly special. And we're also probably, almost certainly, well, each of us definitely is finite in time, right? We only have a few years. Um, the civilization, who knows how long it's got? It might have a few centuries. It might, if we're sensible, it might go off into the indefinite future. Well, a long way anyway. We're, we're incredibly valuable, rare and remarkable structures. It's possible that in a galaxy like the Milky Way, there's only one planet where this, where this happened. It's, it's actually, most biologists I speak to, and I think that's right, most, would say that we, they think microbes are everywhere, but things like us are just basically nowhere. Mm. Um, and so the conclusion I reach in that interesting no man's land, as it were, between these two ideas that don't seem to fit together, is that we're unbelievably valuable unbelievably fortunate to be here and actually the the finite nature of our lives and the fragility of our lives actually adds more to that value so out of those two ideas emerges something i see i think a, a much deeper insight into our value i was asked to give the um intro i did intro video for the cop 26 the climate summit and basically the brief was if you, all the world leaders are going to watch this so what do you want to say to them and of course, we have a list of things I'd like to say to the world leaders. Yeah. But the one thing I said, I just explained that. I said that given what we know, we're the only island of meaning in a sea of 400 billion suns, given what we know. Mm -hmm. And so let's assume that. And then from there, why don't you think about the way that you behave <laughs> together, yeah. given that you're in charge of it all, like you lot mm -hmm. listening to this video, that you are, that's it. Right, it's all you. You're not only in charge of your country. You know, it's so easy to think in terms of countries. I've seen astronauts, many astronauts, I can't remember which astronaut it was, but said that the first orbit or two, you look for your country. Yeah. <laughs> and the next orbit, you look for your continent. And the next orbit, you see Earth. Right? So I said yeah. that's, you know, why don't you think, consider the fact that your actions may determine the future of life and therefore meaning forever in an island of 400 billion suns, 150,000 light years across. Just think about that. And then go away and behave yourself. <laughs> and you left all the world leaders being like... Well, no, oh, yeah, who knows what they thought, you know, but that's basic. But I think that comes, I love it. that comes from perspective. And the, the perspective comes from doing things that seem useless, right? So astronomy, mm you could argue in, in some definition, by some definition of the word, is useless. My careers teacher certainly said that when I was little, and I thought, I want to be an astronomer. And they said, no, you should be a, an, an electrical engineer or something and get a trade, you know. Mm. We, and it's a good thing to do, by the way, if you're an electrical engineer and you're watching. Yeah. We, but, um, but, you know, the, the point that astronomy might be the most useful thing we've ever done, because it might be the thing that tips us over into thinking this way, which means that we take more care of this place and... Uh, don't spend all our money sort of launching missiles at each other. And in that sense, we might end up preserving life and consciousness and civilization in a galaxy of 400 billion suns. So that might be useful.
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What about from the perspective of an average person with no power? this heightened awareness and this perception, what does that do, do you think, in your experience of having taught people? First of all, it's a very beautiful thing to experience individually. The the mm. more you know, um, Carl Sagan said it, he said, when you look at those lights in the sky and you just see lights in the sky, you're missing a lot. When you know that there are the stars, you get something additional you know that there's suns right these things but a long way away and then when you know that there are planets around them you get another thing and so every point of light you look at in the sky there's a solar system and there are planets that might be earth-like planets and they might have water and off you go so it's a wonderful experience to expand your appreciation of the night sky but also i think as you said an ordinary person or someone who feels powerless we're not powerless actually because we live in a democracy and so each of us has the same say, actually. I mean, okay, we can be cynical about it and say, well, it doesn't seem to be that way, but we live in democracies. And so ultimately, the, the people you vote for, that does ultimately determine the direction of the country. It really is genuinely true that in a democratic system, your votes matter. And if we, whoever we are, it doesn't have to be, you know, you can say, well, I, yeah, I've got a voice. I didn't used to have, by the way. You know, I grew up, as we said, I grew up in Oldham and I had the same... I've got a bit more of a voice now because I've been fortunate and lucky and ended up on television and things. But, you know, we all have voices because the, the, these people, we choose the people that control our destiny and our direction. The sort of people that go into politics, ultimately, it, it depends on the atmosphere we create for them. So, it's, I mean, I would say, you know, something that's probably unpopular to say at the moment, but you think about politicians, they have a tremendously hard time as well because we as a society are not particularly civilized in the way we treat them a couple of things i'd really strongly recommend related to this there's yeah. two of my scientific heroes uh, one of them who's been a hero for a long time is richard Feynman, who's every physicist hero right um, right massively charismatic character nobel prize played bongo richard drums Feynman. Feynman. he wrote an essay in 1955 called the value of science which is available online richard Feynman, the value of science and in it, he reflects on what's the value of not only the knowledge that we acquire, but also the process that we go through. And right. it's very similar to something Robert Oppenheimer wrote, who I've recently become really interested in. Oppenheimer is most famous for the atom bomb, right, the Manhattan Project. Yeah. We did a lot of work on black holes, actually, before the war. And both of them are searching for, is there anything that we can do to 
to to try and make this world safer because they were writing in the 50s and they were just they, they both worked on the Manhattan Project and both thought that they had given our society tools that we didn't have the wisdom to control so they thought yeah. we'd destroy ourselves with nuclear weapons we're not out of the woods yet as you know no. and that was before the Cuban Missile Crisis when they were getting worried so they were right to be worried and um, they both came to the conclusion that one thing is that humility is something that nature teaches you Right. When you when you try and explore nature, you're almost always wrong. Right? Almost always. science scientists are always wrong all the time. And there's occasionally you come up with some theory like Peter Higgs, where we started, where it turns yeah. out to be right. Uh, and you, wow, <laughs> you know, then you get yeah. the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Right? It's astonishing. I'm right for once. Yeah. And they said yeah. that it, that humility, the idea that we don't know how to run a society, is too hard. Nobody knows how to do it. Don't let anybody tell you that they know how to run a society as complex as ours. That what you need is people who say, I've got some ideas and uh, I'm going to try those ideas out and uh, we'll be careful because these ideas have real impacts. And if it turns out they don't work, we'll change our mind and we'll try something else. That's science, scientific mm -hmm. method. Um, so that's what democracy is. Feynman said it. Democracy is the idea that we don't know how to do this. And so we'll change things every four or five years. That's yeah. built into democracy. Mm. Interestingly, and Oppenheimer said the same thing. What that means is that no matter how passionately we hold our views, whichever party we identify with or vote for, whatever mm. it is, understand that the pendulum will swing. Sometimes it'll go towards your viewpoint and sometimes it'll go away from it. And as long as it doesn't go too extreme, because we don't want to, you know, we don't want the thing to go to extremes as it has often done in the 20th century, of course, mm -hmm. obviously. But as long as you've got a functioning democracy, a relatively stable liberal democracy, then sometimes that you'll get a government you don't like, and sometimes you get a government you like. If if you always like it, if you always get the government that you like, you better ask yourself a question, which is that: Do I live in a free society anymore? This this idea that we don't really know how to do things because it's too complicated, which is true, has gone away because the same people are running it all the time. It's the power of doubt. It's the power yeah, of, so that, that's it. of lack of certainty being a positive thing. Yeah, and it is. Mm. It goes back to your original question. Mm. But, the, but the thing is that it's hard, isn't it? When you put it in those terms, it's hard. Everyone who's listening will go, yeah, but surely... Surely my side is better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and and what Feynman and Oppenheimer were saying, it, the people who invented the atom bomb, they were saying that what that did to us, the mm. inventors of the atom bomb, was to tell us that do not ever think that your side has a monopoly on wisdom. There's a brilliant book on Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is talking about the discussions that went on when they had the bomb but before they dropped it on Japan. Yeah. And so there's a very small window of weeks when they tested it and then dropped it. And um, the scientists were saying, don't drop it. What you should do is you should tell Stalin, who's you know, at Russia at the time, and Churchill, get them together. They were having meetings all the time, it's 1945. Yeah. Tell them that this knowledge exists and say, you're going to share the knowledge because it's the weapon that should bring the world together. Because if everybody needs to know that we now have the capacity to destroy the world. Mm. Not we, the Americans, but we as a civilization. Yeah. And we as a civilization, therefore, 
have to work out a way of, of containing this. The one thing we don't want is to have an arms race. Yeah. If, if we drop that bomb on Japan, there's always, put aside the horrors of yeah. dropping the bomb, just if we do it, what's going to happen is there's going to be an arms race because yeah. people are going to be scared of us and they're going to build their own bomb. Mm. And it's a disastrous road. Don't do it. And of course, they did it. Yeah. And um, the, you know what happened, right? Cold yeah. War. Yeah. So still going on. <laughs> still. Yeah. It, you know, so it's interesting that, to, to look at those people and see what they were thinking and what they were doing. And, you know, the, the, there's many motivations for building the bomb. But it's interesting that you, you know, once you get the power to destroy yourselves as a civilization, what they were saying, and it's true today, is you have to grow up. Yeah. Then you can't be childish anymore. Mm. You can't play games. You, you, you've got the power to wipe out a civilization. Brian, for those who are listening and the idea of some of what you're talking about, the vastness of it feels actually frightening to them and they'd rather stay in their material surroundings. What would you say in terms of what this awareness, this ascension into insignificance can do for you, can, can change you and how you look at your own life? I think um, it's the joy that is available. If you accept that you don't know a lot, right? and number one, so that you know, is already a positive character trait you can develop. But the, once you accept that not knowing is a wonderful opportunity because then you can go and find out and then experience the joy of finding out. Mm. That I think that's just a, it's a wonderful thing. Being scared about infinity, being scared about the scale of the universe and your place within it is the correct response. It's a natural reaction. Um, the way out of it, there's two ways out of that. One is to stick your head in the sand, but the other one is to, is to turn that into a joyous experience. Mm by saying I'm going to face that fear because in facing the fear, I will have taken the first step on a magical road. Yeah. Brian, thank you so much for this conversation today. It's been so intriguing. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Brian Cox. You can buy tickets to the world tour of Horizons, a 21st century space odyssey, which will be a cinematic journey with Professor Brian and comedian Robin Ince using state-of-the-art LED screen technology to fill arenas with images of faraway galaxies, alien worlds, supermassive black holes and a time before the Big Bang. If you liked this conversation, then they will be getting deeper into those questions like why does the universe exist and what does it mean to live a small, finite life in a vast eternal universe? It's touring all over the UK, as well as Asia, Australia and New Zealand. Plus, you can pre-order the new book, Black Holes, The Key to Understanding the Universe, co-written with Professor Jeffrey Forshaw, which is out on 6th of October. We'll put a link in the show notes for both of them. Let us know what you thought of Brian. Obviously, hit me up on Instagram, Annie McManus on there. Tell your friends and family, anyone who you know who's a space nut, who's into astronomy, or just, you know, into asking questions, who's curious about the world, hopefully would enjoy this episode. Do subscribe for the new season so you don't miss anything. Give us a rating where you can. 
Also, we have a transcript of changes every week on my website. There's a link in the show notes. So anyone who you know who might benefit from experiencing this in written form, it's there for them. We are going to be back next Monday with the author and journalist Sean Fay, who has written a book everyone should read called The Transgender Issue, An Argument for Justice, having provided commentary as a trans woman for years. It's a really insightful and important listen. This episode of Changes was produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. See you later. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.